Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Genesis, actually Exodus chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2. Did you bring your Bibles with you this morning? It's great to see those Bibles. Just hold them up for me there. It's great. I love seeing those Bibles. I want to tell you how much I appreciate you being here this Sunday morning come to worship. There's a lot of other places you could be, but you've chosen to be here on this cold winter morning. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for your presence. You know, there's something about being in the church, being obedient to the leading of the Lord in your life, and being a follower of Christ that makes all the difference. This is a place where we come to be refreshed and equipped and empowered to do the work that God has already enabled us to do. And so we're glad that you're here this morning. We're working through a series entitled Great Expectations. With my fourth sermon on this series, the first two we looked at the life of Joshua. And that very first week, um, we took the words of God to Joshua to be strong and courageous to heart. The second week, as we looked at the life of Joshua, we um, had a question that was asked of us, and that was this. What is your son stand still prayer? Some of you shared a few of those prayers with me. And a few of you have shared that God has already answered some of those prayers. Last week, we looked at the life of Abraham. And we realized that Abraham, the gift of God to Abraham, was not just about the land, the promised land, and not just about the fact that he would be a father of many nations, but the gift was God himself to Abraham and that covenant. And the gift was for us in the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look at the story of Moses. And there's a central question to this story today, and that is this. What is in your hand? What is in your hand? What are the gifts, the talents, the resources that God has given you? What is the platform of influence that God has placed you in? What is in your hand? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures, for the way that the word of God speaks to us, the way that we can read even these Old Testament stories and we find strength and encouragement. Today, as we look at the story of Moses, we're challenged with that question. What is in your hand. We live lives of great expectation. And so often, Lord, we feel like it's so ordinary, that which is in our hand. And yet, Lord, if we will lay it down, you will do the extraordinary with the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the resources that you've given us. Help us to be a people, Lord, who lay down so that you can take it up And use it for your glory. And we ask it in your name. Amen. So I want to try to connect a few of the dots this morning. Last week we looked at the life of Abraham. And Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. And Isaac had a son whose name was Jacob. And Jacob, God changed his name to Israel. And Israel had 12 sons. One of those sons was a guy by the name of Joseph. And you know Joseph. Joseph's the guy that had a coat of many callers. And we know that story as children growing up. 
Well, he was kind of an irritant to his brothers, and so his brothers betrayed him to Egypt and uh, sold him into slavery. And so he was taken to Egypt. While he was there in Egypt, he came into power, if you will, with a guy by the name of Potiphar. He was in charge of Potiphar's house. And, and then Potiphar's wife betrayed Joseph, accused him of some stuff that he didn't do. And, and so he was thrown in prison for a period of time. And then while in prison, he has these dreams. And while he has these dreams, uh, uh, the Pharaoh has some dreams. And uh, Joseph was one to interpret the dream. So the Pharaoh brought him in. And the dream was about twelve, seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And so the Pharaoh found favor with Joseph. And he put him in charge of making sure that through the seven years of plenty, we provided for the seven years of famine. And Joseph came into a certain amount of power. He found success in managing those seven years of famine. And now his family was brought into Egypt. They were given some land in Goshen to, to take care of their cattle and their flocks. And to, they were shepherds. And shepherds were kind of despised by the Egyptians. As a matter of fact, all foreigners were despised by the Egyptians. As far as the Egyptians were concerned, foreigners were nothing more than dirt to be trampled under their feet. And it was in this time that Exodus begins. When we begin the story of Exodus in Exodus chapter 1, Joseph's family has just come into Egypt. They're about 70 in number. And over the next 350 years, they grow exponentially to about 3 million. Well, Pharaoh that was welcomed in the Egyptians had long since passed. And the Pharaoh that knew Joseph, the new Pharaohs, did not know of his story and did not care. They were nothing more than foreigners. As a matter of fact, they became an irritant, these Israelites, to the Egyptians. And so they sought to oppress them, and they did. And they made them uh, do construction work for them. And these guests who were once invited in as guests have now become slaves in Egypt And it's in this place that Moses was born. Because their numbers had grown so exponentially, um, Pharaoh sought to stop that. And so he told the midwives, I want you to um, go to the house of the Hebrews, and when they have children, if it's a baby boy, kill it. Well, the midwives refused to do that. They would always make excuses like, well, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are so strong, when, when, I, when we get there, they've already delivered these children. And we do not know where they are. So they made these excuses and for why they were not killing these babies. So then Pharaoh said, well, just take the babies, all the male babies, and throw them into the Nile. Well, it was in this time that Moses was born, and, and his parents decided that, that they would keep the baby. And for two or three months they did that, but they were afraid of being found out, and so they constructed a basket, a waterproof basket, and they put this child in this basket. And and the child would be hidden in the Nile in the the grasses there. Well, on one occasion, while the child was hidden in the grass, Pharaoh's daughter was out swimming and she heard this cry from this baby and she noticed the basket that was there and she sent one of her swimmers out to bring the basket back and of course with the basket came this Hebrew girl it was Moses's sister and Pharaoh's daughter kind of took just noticed how beautiful this boy was and she was without child herself and and so she thought I'll take this child in and adopt this child as my own 
Well, the sister was there, and she asked the question, uh, would you like for me to get one of the Hebrew women to nurse your child? And so Pharaoh's daughter said, yeah, that'd be great. And so they went, and, and they get Moses' own mother to be his nurse, and they hire her to nurse and to care for Moses. So Moses has a new life, if you will. He's, he's in a palace, and yet he's being raised by his mom. He's in two different worlds. His mom teaches him about the Hebrew traditions and the Hebrew way of life. But his adopted mother, Pharaoh's daughter, teaches him about the things of the throne. Historians tell us, Josephus tells us, that Pharaoh had no son. And because he had no son, there was no heir to the throne. And many believe that Moses was being nurtured to take over the throne. So here we have Moses. He moves from a very humble shack in the ghettos of Goshen to the stately, elegant courts of a king. He he attends the best schools that Egypt has to offer. He learns science and medicine and astronomy and hieroglyphics and chemistry and theology and philosophy. He learns about art and music. He, He learns about strategic battles and how to fight strategic battles. Acts chapter 7 verse 22 explains it this way. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of Egypt. Now you have to understand, Egypt was the world power. And the best education one could possibly receive was in Egypt. Moses had this great education. Then it says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of Egypt and was powerful in speech and in action. So here we have Moses. He, he's the prince of Egypt. People look up to him. He has all this authority because he's been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter into this family. But he's nurtured by his natural mother, this Hebrew, raised in her traditions. And so he is in two different worlds. And he sees the injustice that's happened to the Hebrews. And he's moved by that. Chuck Swindoll, in his book on Moses, he writes that he believes that Scripture strongly implies that Moses had begun to understand his destiny prior to that burning bush experience. We don't know that for certain, but we do know that Moses was taught by his mother, his natural mother, the ways of the Hebrews. He may have known prior to this burning bush experience God's destiny for him. You see, in this series entitled Great Expectations, we are asking the question, Lord, what is it that you have for me? What is my purpose in this life? Where where am I going and how am I to get there? What is your will for my life? You see, we wrestle with that question, don't we? We want more. We search for significance. I imagine that Moses was probably felt very much the same way. What is my role? He was in two different worlds. He was a prince of Egypt. And yet, his kinship was with the Hebrews. And he witnessed the atrocities that happened all around him. 
He may have known God's will, but the problem was he did not bother to seek God's way and God's timing. Look with me at Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, the Scripture says. Glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Glancing this way and that. What the Scripture does not say is, where he did not glance. He looked to his right, he looked to his left, he saw no one, and he killed the Egyptian because of the injustice that he saw. But he did not look up. He did not inquire of the Lord. And it speaks to us about the timing of God and how we must also seek God in in the decisions of life. Acts chapter 7, verse 25 tells us, tells us this about Moses. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Did Moses understand his destiny? Did he understand? Was he stepping in to start a revolt against the Pharaoh? Was he ahead of his time? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been outraged by an injustice? Have you ever been out, I mean, just livid over an injustice? Debbie and I were uh, in the ministry about 10 years. We were at the West Carrollton Church of the Nazarene. And uh, it was a, a Saturday. We'd worked hard all day on a roofing project. The church, we decided that we'd re-roofed a new section of the uh, church. We put 80 shingles on this um, new roof. And we decided to take off the old shingles from the sanctuary roof. It was steep and dirty and hard work. I was hot. I was miserable. We worked all day long. Then we hauled these shingles off to the dump. And so when we did, um, we went to the dump. I helped unload those. And then Debbie came and picked me up at somebody's house, the guy that was overseeing this project. She picked me up in this little Toyota Corolla that we had. And it had, le- had had vinyl seats on it, just real plain Jane kind of a car. And uh, it was just, she picked me up, and, and I said, you know, Debbie, you just drive. I'm exhausted. And I was sweaty and sticky and miserable, a little bit grumpy. You ever been there? And uh, so we, we start head towards home. It's not really that far to our house, and but there's... In West Carrollton, there's four lanes of traffic that goes one way and four lanes of traffic that goes another way. It's two great big one-way streets. And there's residents and businesses in the middle of these two streets. And we're going down towards home, and, and we get stopped by a light. And there's a green Cadillac in front of us. We're in the second lane of traffic. And then there's two other lanes over here. And uh, this guy wants to get out of Wendy's and get around clear over to this far left lane, and he's in a pickup truck. And so he starts honking his horn, and he honks, and he honks, and, and Debbie each, et, goes up as far as she can all the way to the bumper of this green Cadillac, and, and the guy can't get around her, and he's frustrated, so he's bump, you know, honking, honking, and honking, and, and uh, she keeps edging forward, but she can't go anywhere. I mean, she's, that's all. And so he starts yelling at her, and she can't do anything, and then he drives up over the curb of the Wendy's, 
and pulls around her. And, of course, I'm slumped down in my seat this whole time. He pulls around her, and then he starts screaming at my wife. He flips her a gesture, and, and he's yelling at her, and, and has honked his horn. And finally, I sit up and said, hey, buddy. You know, the windows are open. What are you doing? And the guy says, come on. Before I think of think what I'm doing, I'm out of the car. I mean, I'm not going to let somebody insult my wife that way. And, you know, I'm 30 years old. I'm going to clean this guy's clock. And I get around the front of the car, and the Holy Spirit says, Mr. Person, Holy Spirit speaks to me that way. It's not Pastor Rex. It's not Dr. Rex. It's Mr. Person. Are you a Christian? Are you just playing this game? Now, I'm in a mess. I'm out in front of this guy. This guy's real big. I mean, he's, you know, he's got mayonnaise running down his face. And, and you know, now what do I do? And, and so I, I go to him, and I don't know what to say. And so I say, shake my hand. He looks at me like, what are you talking about? I said, shake my hand. And he was like, no way am I shaking your hand. And I reached out my hand. I said, shake my hand. And he reached out and he shook my hand. <laughs> that was one of the most embarrassing days of my life. Have you ever been enraged by an injustice? I wanted to defend my wife. I felt like I could clean his clock. And quite honestly, I think I could have. Well, Moses finds himself in a very similar situation. He's outraged by what he sees going around him, but he gets ahead of God. He looks to the right and he looks to the left, but he doesn't inquire of the Lord and his timing. Fortunately, we have the Holy Spirit to keep us from being beat beyond recognition. You know, as I was in front of that car, I, I saw the newspaper ad, youth pastor arrested for assault and battery. <laughs> the scripture says that he hid the Egyptian in the sand. Invariably, when we act in the flesh, you will always have something to cover up. It's only a matter of time before the truth comes out. The sand always reveals its secrets. You may say, Rex, it's possible to hide things. Uh, Well, that may be true. But you can't hide things from God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says it this way, Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Consider this, when Moses took matters in his own hands, he couldn't even hide the Egyptian properly in the sand. But years later, when God was in charge and in God's timing, he buried an entire army. In the Red Sea. Look with me at Exodus chapter 2 verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now that Moses' hand had been tipped, now that Pharaoh was questioning his loyalties, Pharaoh couldn't stomach having such a man in his court. In the king's eyes, a disloyal and out-of-control prince was better off dead. And so he sought to kill Moses. 
And so Moses runs to Midian, where he sits down by a well. I would imagine at that moment he felt that he was at the bottom of that well. You see, his identity, the prince of Egypt, was gone. He felt at the bottom of the well. Perhaps you've arrived at a similar place at some point in your life where you felt like you were at the bottom of the well looking up. Lord, I'm in this pit. Where you think to yourself, I'm a failure and God could never use me. I want to tell you something today. God specializes in using broken people and helping us to get out from the bottom of that well. Think about it. Abraham told Sarah to lie. And yet later, Abraham was known as the friend of God. And he became an example of faith for generations to come. Jacob was a chiseler and a cheat who took his own brother, uh, took advantage of his own brother and getting him to sell his birthright for a pot of stew. However, God lifted Jacob to such heights that eventually he gave him the name Israel. Or Rahab. She was a well-known resident of Jericho's red light district. But because of her obedience in hiding Joshua's spies, her entire family was saved. You see, our God is a God who specializes in using broken, ordinary people. Just like you, just like me. So we find Moses in the desert for 40 years. He was 40 years of age when he went to the desert, and for the next 40 years, he was a shepherd in obscurity in the desert. The desert evidently is a great training place for the people of God. We find Each one of these patriarchs in the desert, we find Abraham in the desert as a shepherd, Isaac in the desert as a shepherd, Jacob in the desert as a shepherd. God evidently used this quiet moment to develop Moses, to equip him for the work that was before him. In chapter 3, God says to Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to tell the leaders of Israel, that God spoke to you through a burning bush, and God has instructed you to lead Israel out of its 400 years of bondage. You can imagine why Moses would have had fear at this point. He would have had all these questions. What if? What if, Lord? Will they believe me? What if they don't believe me? Look with me at Exodus chapter 4, verse 2. Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? What is, Moses, in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and it ran, and he ran from it. It's kind of interesting. They put in that little extra piece there, he ran from it. Of course he did. It became a snake. (laughs) He threw down this staff, a staff that he was very familiar with for 40 years He'd been a shepherd. And he threw down this staff that was just an ordinary staff. And he threw it down and it turned into a snake. Then the Lord said to him, verse 4, 
Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took a hold of the snake and turned it back into a staff in his hands. As children, we used to catch snakes. It was kind of a fun, it was, it was fun, it was an adventure, you know, as small boys, we would take sticks and we'd always find a stick that had just a fork on it. And, but we would, we were smart enough not to grab a snake by the tail. Now the reason you don't grab a snake by the tail is what? Yeah, to bite you. It's going right back and get you. And, and even though most of the time the snakes that we were catching were garter snakes, uh, we always made sure that we got them by the back of the head and then we'd pick them up right there in the back of their head. Because we wanted to make sure they didn't bite us. And I was bit a couple times by those garter snakes. And it, it doesn't kill you, but it doesn't feel that good either. Well, Moses was obedient and he reached down and he picked up the snake by the tail. Moses, what is in your hand, the Lord said? Staff. It's just what I do. You see, the staff was his identity. He was a shepherd. It represented his income. It represented his platform of influence. He used the staff to pull and to push the sheep, to protect the sheep, to care for his sheep. It was his authority. So what God was asking Moses essentially to do was to lay down his identity. Throw it down. Are you willing to lay down your identity? To become the person that God has created you to be? You see, whoever loses his life will find it. Will you lay down the staff, the stuff that represents who you are? Will you lay it down? The Lord asks us the same question that he asked Moses all those years ago. What is in your hand? What are the gifts, the talents, the resources that God has given you? The Lord wants to remind us today that He wants to use all that we are for His glory. Are you willing to take the gifts, the talents, the resources, your platform of influence for His glory? You see, sociologists tell us that even the most introverted individual will influence 10,000 people in their lifetime. God says, I I want to take that which is very ordinary. We probably feel that way at times. I feel that way often. Very ordinary. Not particularly spectacular. Sometimes I second guess my own gifts, my own talents, my own abilities. Very ordinary. But God wants to take that which is ordinary and accomplish the extraordinary. But it happens when we lay down our life. What are your gifts, your talents, your resources, your platform of influences? Are you willing to give them to the Lord? For for years, Debbie and I have tithed. It's just what we do as followers of Christ. We never really questioned it. We accepted we were married as Christians, and it was just something we did from the very beginning. Even when we had very little, we, we always tithed. I remember years where we just... 
we lived on macaroni and cheese because there just wasn't enough, not macaroni, tuna noodle casserole. To this day, we never have tuna noodle casserole at our house. We ate so much tuna noodle casserole. I wasn't sure if it was the lack of money or the fact that Debbie just wasn't a very good cook yet. (laughs) But we ate a lot of tuna noodle casserole. But we were obedient to this concept of tithing. And over the years, the Lord has blessed us, and, and he's taken that which seems so ordinary, take that little bit of money and think it's really not that much. And I watch how God has used it and multiplied it. And you know what it's done for us? When we're a part of the church, with our time, our talents, and our resources, we're invested. We're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And now when missionaries go out, we're a part of their work. We're yoke men together and women. We share these burdens together. We share the purpose of God in our lives. And so it's been a part. And God takes this ordinary amount of money and he uses it for extraordinary things. He changes our heart and our attitudes when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You see, the life of generosity is not one of great obligation, but one of great privilege. Living a life of generosity is an investment in treasures in heaven, where thieves do not break in and steal, where moth and rust do not corrupt. What is in your hand? What is the resources, the time, the talent that God has given to you? Jesus also mentioned the tithe. In his teaching, this is especially important to us because Jesus sometimes gave us hints as to whether the practice of the old covenant would be carried into the new, whether it be discontinued under the new covenant. For example, Jesus gave indications in his teaching that the old covenant dietary laws would be set aside and the Gentiles would be included with the Israelites. Yet Jesus gave no indication that the principle of the tithe would be set aside. Matter of fact, he affirms it. If you look at Matthew 23, 23, the scripture says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law and justice and mercy. Jesus is saying, yeah, you pay tithe, but you care less about mercy and justice. There's so much more to just the giving. It's the living that makes a difference. However, in this scripture, Jesus validates the principle of the tithing. And he's saying this, the latter should not have been left undone. Today, I'm asking the question, what is in your hand? What are the, time, what, what are the gifts, the abilities, the resources that God has given to you? You see, the problem is when we hold on to these things, it's impossible for us to find the purpose of God in our lives. For whoever loses his life will find it. And we throw it down and we give it to God. And then he empowers us to take those gifts, those resources that he's given to us to make a difference in the kingdom. What is in your hand? Let's pray. Lord, we look at the story of Moses. Moses accomplished extraordinary things with just a staff in his hand. It was with that staff that God uh, brought about the ten plagues. 
It was with that staff that Moses parted the Red Sea. It was with that staff that uh, Moses touched the rock and water came out, even though he was disobedient in that and not speaking to the rock. And Lord, you will use our time, our resources, our talents for your glory when we surrender it to you. Help us, Lord, to be a people that are surrendered to your will, to your way. The tithe, it's a privilege, not an obligation. There's some in this room, Lord, and I know it's the thought of tithing is a mountain too big for them to conceive. From week to week, they do not know how to put food on their tables. And yet, Lord, you bless when we put you first. And I don't understand how all that works, but I understand your love and your grace and your mercy that has extended to us. I understand that we're saved by grace and not by our works. And Jesus is addressing the reality here Love, mercy, and justice are significant. And so, Lord, help us be a people who extend love, mercy, and justice to our world. Help us to be a people who realize our platform of influence. And, Lord, take what we have. We lay it at your feet and use it for the building of your kingdom. And we pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.